<laughs> I love that drop so much. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Giggles are always a good way to start the episode. Oh, yeah. Well, all right. Welcome back to another episode of Geology on the Rocks, your one-stop audio shop for all things rocks and rocking out. A brief overview of tonight's episode will include the intros and hellos, followed by the triple junction and new news. Our main discussion will give insights into the remaining bits of the psilocyclastics with regards to conglomerates and shales slash mudstones and wrap things up with diagenesis. Between the bars, we present to you another Mineral Minute, and before signing off, we'll close things out with another That Freaking Rocks, which I'm excited about Mr. Braggins. Woo! And then, Braggins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a big thank you to all of our listeners out there for allowing us to be played between your earballs and for spending your time with us each week. If you'd like to reach out to us, whether it be for episode ideas, answers you're wanting questioned, if you fancy being a guest, or just want to tell us about all the times we were wrong, you can reach us at <laughs> geologyotr at gmail.com, or you can find us on Instagram at geologyontherocks podcast. It looks like things are squared away over here. So without further ado to all of you over there, I am your host, James the Geologist. And I'm Brian Baggin. And this is Geology, Geology on, on the, the, the Rock. <laughs> oh, you do that on purpose now. <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So there's a thing in there that I I change. Every, like So for a while, saying, uh, what is it? Answers you're wanting answered. <laughs> Today yeah. I said answers you're <laughs> wanting questions. Well, hey, another week, man. How are you? I think I'm dead. I don't think I'm alive anymore. I don't know, man. It's like <laughs> this, this study I'm doing it has finally taken its toll. Taken its toll. I am, I am wiped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but, I feel um, like, I don't know if it's something in the air. Maybe it's like, I don't know. After the holidays, you know, you get that kind of energy. It kind of like revived a little bit. But then, man, as as the weeks go on, it, you, you just start to get, oh, my God, I have so much to do. Yeah. It starts yeah, wearing down I, on you. I agree. And I mean, I'm sure you're why do like aren't you writing papers and oh yeah i have i have so much stuff and yeah no i completely have derelict to my duties of (laughs) doing this because i was like man i gotta get this show together (laughs) and then there's other stuff and then the the impeachment today so i was kind of uh just all not into my school studies but yeah here we are (laughs) yeah i didn't get to watch any of that because i'm been so god i i feel like when i close my eyes i see quartz and topaz and other minerals because I've just been looking at a microscope. I'm not even kidding. Like, oh, so it's just like an all day type of thing, huh? It's all day at night. Yeah. I'm trying to get this done because if I can pull this off, I'm in a really good state. But if I failed, I just like <laughs> right. all we're, my risk. We're not going to let you fail, Mr. Baggins. Thank you. We're not going to let you fail. Thank you and our listeners. <laughs> y'all, y'all are the ones keeping this project alive. Y'all, Thank you. Yeah. So I guess we'll, if you want to, we can get, uh, just jump right into the 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 new segment the triple junction the fanfare feedback and follow-ups yeah. so this week we got a, a an email from lauren so thank you lauren we agree that i guess the world of geology really is like this incredibly broad and maybe brian and i can sit down probably in the near future i think we've talked about this about creating a episode about career paths because I, I think this is a couple emails that we've gotten about i guess really the undergraduate kind of what are my options concerning like yeah pursuing this degree and then outside of that i think we really do need to buckle down on that one and write something yeah and i I think that's it's great because we were there, right? Like we yeah. didn't know what we wanted to do. And just myself, I thought I'd be doing something completely different than I'm doing now. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, I knew what but I wanted to do. We are where we are and we're doing different stuff and I think we're doing pretty well. So there's always another avenue. You may not do what you want. And then, I mean, it's, it's, and I think that like just doing this little bit right here is not doing any of that any justice. I feel like <laughs> I'm stuttering because I'm like, God, yeah. Because I, I, I feel like we need, we can put some 
thought into it and I think it would be a really good idea to do an episode like that. And then another fanfare, Megan and Mark from Texas for listening each week. And that's what I got. We also got another question. Woo. Okay. So this one might right. be uh, a little confusing, but we can try to answer it as best as possible. So they, the question we have this week is silicates have the same building block, the silicon oxygen tetrahedron, which is SiO4. Not sure how to type this exactly. I guess they, I guess I changed it in the notes. I guess it wasn't written exactly like that. But anyways, they say the tetrahedron SiO4 and then the sulfates always include the SO4. What's the best way to keep these separate and not confuse them? So I guess they're seeing mm. like the SiO4, that SO4 and yeah. the, you want to go ahead and lead this one off? Um, Yeah. So I think in the easiest sense, just memorize <laughs> that they are completely different. Absolutely, completely different. I think that's, um, the, that's the, the big step right there is that they're yeah. two separate polyatomic ions. Right. And I think that because they occur in completely different settings, right? But for one thing, like the sulfate in a silicate, like a silicate is going to be forming out of melt usually of some sort. And so a sulfate is usually not. But really, it has to do with the fact that like a silicon oxygen tetrahedron, like even quartz will like eventually form something like that. Yeah. But a sulfate is they're completely different mineral suite. Um, yes. And that's something I remember learning. You had your, your groups of elements, right? Like your carbonate group, your calcite group of elements, mm-hmm. your silicates, your sulfates. Just if you can, like in your head, just say, yeah, they both have an S and an O and a four in, in the compound, but they're not related because the S has to be tied to the I. Yeah. It's silicon. Yeah. It's silicon. Yeah. It's completely different. And then I know we were talking about this a little bit, trying to wrap our heads around this, but so like the, the SO4 polyatomic ion is going to be SO4 no matter its chemical formula in whatever mineral assemblages you have. So I when I think of it, I think of uh, gypsum, which is the calcium sulfate, the CaSO4 uh, with two H2Os. We have the, uh, the what is it, the Ba, the, the bayrite. So the BaSO4, yeah. celestite, which is strontium SO4, SrSO4. Right. Then we have like the chalcothite, which is a copper sulfide hydrated. Oh, that's a beautiful so- mineral, by the way. Yeah, so it's CuSO4 with uh, five waters. So what we're seeing in that is like that that SO4 ion, it's not changing. But like, so when we think of olivine, right, which is what, uh, it, it, what? MGFE, 2SiO4. Yeah, 2SiO4. <laughs> but so then when we think of quartz, it's SiO2. So, right, right. so then we have other, uh, the way that they build it, so they're going to be using, it's still that, it's still that, uh, that, that silicon oxygen tetrahedron, but the, the way that they're formed and way that they're, they're using that, uh, the, the polyatomic numbers with that, because the SiO4, it's, um, it's a four minus, right? And then they yeah. form in different ways. So like the C- neosilicates, right? So it's SiO4, the endosilicates, the Si3, and the phyllosilicates, the Si205, sorosilicates, Si207. So we're seeing that they're the different arrangements of that SiO4 in different, I guess, dif- different ways. So I hope that answers that in the best way. It's just, yeah, but the silicates I mean, are silicates, sulfates are sulfates. Sulfate, yeah. Yeah, and the in sulfides the, yeah. are sulfides. But the sulfate, that polyatomic ion is always going to be that sulfate. That's what makes it is that SO4. Yeah, and just remember they form differently. They, they're in completely different. Yeah. Like you, it, yeah, no, I'm not going to go there. It could get a lot more complicated, but I'm not going to. Just <laughs> oh, you, you just wait till we get different. onto this episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. gonna, we talk yeah. we will we'll beat uh the silicates over the head but uh follow-ups do you have any follow-ups i don't have any follow-ups i listened to last week's episode and i don't i nothing stuck out to me where i was like man i need to say something about that no i mean i i didn't hear anything either and i haven't heard anything from anyone else so uh all right we're good well cool then on to a little new news my friend oh, wait 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 i would like to cheers you because oh yeah we have not done that yet oh woo. here's to episode 19 <laughs> oh my god Gosh. I know we're just rocking. We've got this hard, man. We're rocking and rolling. Next week's twenty, man. the The last episode of this season is we turn a quarter of a century, which wow. I'm pretty excited about that. But uh, oh, uh, a little man. I want to start playing music during new news. Maybe I'll do that one that just doesn't yeah. turn off. New news, my friend. Okay, so I didn't mean to do this, but my my news articles kind of take a a color theme this week. So I was going to talk about this episode that not episode. 
<laughs> I hear music and I'm like, hey, <laughs> welcome to another episode. <laughs> so yeah. the uh, my first article is it's called The Evolution of Animal Skins of the Deep Ocean. I found this article quite interesting that a recent article published in the Journal of Current Biology, it talked about 16 recently discovered deep sea fish that have evolved this ultra black skin. Believe it or not, there are really not a lot of animal, animal species that have ultra black pigmentation, while other species such as birds, a paradise, and butterflies, and spiders have evolved this pigmentation to really, I guess they, they, they've developed it to kind of highlight their, or bring attention to their bright colors that they have. Well, these fish have evolved for opposite, and that is of wanting to not be seen. So the scientists define ultra black as reflecting less than five or half a percent, 0.5% of incoming lights. For comparison, if you're just to look at like a black sheet of paper or something like that, uh, you're getting about yeah. 10% incoming light or reflecting back off of that. So that's 20 times darker than, than the paper is this definition of ultra black. And then I guess some of these fish actually are reflecting like a 0 0.044 to 0.055% of light, making them, making one in particular, <laughs> the dreamer angler fish. You know anything about those angler fishes? Like they're just these Dude, they're so freaky, man. Yeah. So like the, yeah. it's actually, I think going to be one of the blackest animal pigmentations ever documented. And then what I found interesting in this is like, so the trade-off for this like ultra, ultra, ultra dark skin is that it comes at the cost of omitting a layer of collagen. So this black omits this layer of collagen, making it fragile and gelatinous. <laughs> wow. So something wanted to bite you. Yeah. Got, yeah. So uh, or if they could even see you. Then, yeah. If yeah. you could even see it, like, so it's already dark down there, right? So I guess this is that mechanism. So yeah. I guess what they're learning is like, so you actually have like this, this snow that comes down that is bioluminescent, like these algae. So, I mean, like, I guess it's a, a to avoid being eaten or they've evolved it to be able to sneak up on people. Cause guy, <laughs> if you're reflecting oh even God. less light than anything else, ugh, I just, like, that's the thing that like nightmares <laughs> yeah. are made of. It's ultra black skin well, they, pigmentation. They already look nightmarish <laughs> anyway. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> now they're like this like ghastly phantom. Like, it's just, yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. So speaking of the deep ocean, that's kind of where my first story would come from. So biologists determined that we can't escape life. What? Even 6,500 meters deep in the ocean. So the, the things that crawl on your skin and it's the, 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 the phone call that we all fear kind of, uh, our yeah, kids getting it. Cool, yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, every time I so, think about lice, just hold, oh, uh, I, I always feel like my head's itching. Right. Dude, my, you, you uh, say my daughter Isabella had it once and it was terrible. Like I spent hours like cause you can't like you can like do all the chemical treatments and stuff. But yeah. like you really have to like even that doesn't get rid of it. So, yes. like, then you got to like go through and like disinfecting thing. all the eggs and everything because uh, like, no. the eggs can survive. Yeah, like, no, and then just yeah. like uh, you start talking about it, and like I just feel like I have them crawling in my <laughs> head. But okay, go ahead. I don't. I didn't mean to diverge that much, but no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> so they started determining because insects, like in the open ocean, are not really a thing. Like they, I guess maybe they are very. I, I don't know. Well, the article I was I was reading about basically was like you won't really see these in the open ocean, but they found that like they started tracing the elephant seals okay. and these lice will get so big because they stay on them for so long oh my um, God. that you can see them with like the naked eye from far away. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and so these, yeah, these lice like then like go with them. These elephant seals dive really deep sometimes for like two hours at a time underwater and they like will come up and they'll go breed on land or whatever, or lay eggs, or not lay eggs, oh my God, give yeah. birth to, <laughs> you know what I mean? And the life take that, like, quick moment to just hurry up and reproduce <laughs> and then repopulate, and so then they'll go back down and diving. And so what they did is they, they grabbed these lice off these elephant seal flippers, and they put them under immense pressure in the lab, and, like, when they put, like, uh, enough pressure for the, would it be the equivalent of 6,500 meters depth. Yeah. Like, 70-something percent of them survived. Oh, my goodness. So, it's like the tardigrade. The, like, oh, yeah, they, they, you just can't like, destroy them. Yeah. It's like these <laughs> little things that you just can't get rid of, and, and that, that you want to... You, you want to get rid of them. Yeah, uh, like, I but I, I mean, at least if the lice were big, they'd be a lot easier to, I guess, control. To see, I guess, maybe. 
I don't know. Maybe that's like the old life and the young lights are hiding and they're like, oh yeah, like they think they got us all. I don't know. Yikes. God. Yeah, and obviously like, uh, I'm gonna, <laughs> well, my second article, Mr. Brian, is called Blood Snow. <laughs> so yeah. like, yeah, so as we know, it's summertime, right? <laughs> it is not summertime. <laughs> well, it's summertime in where I'm talking about. So in Antarctica. Oh, okay. In Antarctica. <laughs> so when we imagine Antarctica, like, right, I'm sure we see the white fields of snow. However, in some areas, there are streaks of red that actually look like a whale exploded <laughs> and mixed in with oh. the ice and snow. So, I mean, like, it, when I saw the picture, I was like, what in the world happened there? So, however, it's Ugh. it's not actually this, it's, it's this rare occurrence, but it's actually not that rare. In fact, Aristotle referred to it as watermelon snow. So, I mean, there's record of this, what's happening. So, what's causing the snow to bleed red well it's actually this red pigmented algae called it, i say this chlamydia but it's chlamydia <laughs> chlamydia monis chlamydia monis nivalis and it thrives in frigid antarctic environments and it lays dormant in the snow and ice well what's happening is when this ice and snow melt the algal blooms and spreads their red flower like spores everywhere and then the red pigment is produced by the by like carotenoids so interesting the red helps absorb heat and protects it from UV light, allowing the organisms to best be less likely to create genetic mutations. But that absorption of heat is bad for the ice, right? So it produces a little bit of the positive feedback loop where the there's more algae, it absorbs more heat due to that pigmentation, melts more ice, increasing the amount of algae, producing more heat, and so forth. So yeah, blood ice. Oh, wow, <laughs> so blood it just kind of like it kind of just melts and then it pools and then it looks like and then it kind of I guess refreezes a little bit and then it looks like blood. So look up Antarctic blood snow. <laughs> okay, I will. That's yeah. gonna be my next album art. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, well, my last new news will go to the great land of Egypt. And so archaeologists were, I guess, digging up people's graves, technically. <laughs> but yeah. they were going through all these tombs, and they started to notice that in, like, the higher-up, like, echelons of, like, the, like, oh, I almost said class. What is it called? Caste? Like, the caste system, right? Yeah, um, but I mean, you so could class like, it, class, like, you, we have class system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Upper yeah. middle class, lower middle yeah, class, yeah. lower class, upper class. Um, but anyways, they found gold tongue, like, oh. when they would, like, open the mouth. Oh, of, like Yeah, they covered the tongue in gold. Oh. And so the gold, yeah. <laughs> and, and so they're, like, puzzled about this because they, they've seen similar things before. Uh -huh. But the basically what they're thinking is it's so that whoever died could speak in the afterlife because gold doesn't tarnish. Uh, so it preserved that part of them, which okay. which shows that they really favored speech, right? Like that that was something that like your words and like language could be something to live eternally. Yeah, but so it, it also was, shows that they knew their mineralogy. Yeah, it did, obviously. Yeah. So boom, there you go. Yeah, so I mean like they didn't put like silver there because that tarnished. No, yeah. Even though I don't, I'm, so I'm not a fan of the color gold. <laughs> like, uh, I'm not either. Yeah, I mean, they obviously liked it, but I, I, yeah. I can see its appeal. But like, to me, I, I don't know. Maybe it's I just I don't care enough. But that's interesting. So, uh, was it like so they would just like put like uh, I guess like gold over it, or would it, they like put like this gold kind of like I don't know mold over it? <laughs> It seemed like, yeah, like like in some cases they would just put gold on it, okay. and so you just have this gold piece, which is which is in other cultures too. Like Greeks would do that. Yeah, they um, put it over the like, eyes, right, to pay the right. to get over the river in the river sticks and all that stuff. Uh huh. But in this case, like they did coat okay the the tongue, and so like I guess if they like cut open. <laughs> the golden tongue they may find some just carbon i don't i don't know <laughs> but, uh, yeah. so it's almost like uh what was it in game of thrones where they just like poured that gold <laughs> that liquid yeah, gold on yeah. the, the wrong targaryen right i think yeah. i don't know i don't know 
Well, that's well, that's fantastic, man. Well, should I guess without further ado, should we go ahead and just go ahead, fill it, finish up on the the Acoustics a little bit? You want to finish up? Yeah, 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 yeah. All um, right. Well then. All right. Well, Golden Tongues. Uh, hopefully, uh, we don't stumble too much on this. Yeah, it's it's just one of those uh, tired head weeks for I guess both of us. But we're gonna try to do the the <laughs> remaining bits of the Acoustics, uh, the shales and the conglomerates, and then a little bit of the diagenesis, some just. So on to episode 19 we go, my friend. And then Ooh. I think we we titled this one, insert name. No, I think I I, I just put it in like fan classic. So, uh, so it's like fan classic that we're finally done. Fantastic. Fan classic. Absolutely fan classic. <laughs> and, and this is really going to pick up where we left off with the Silica Classic Rocks. And we want to present to you the, the remaining parts with the conglomerates and shells with their compositional and classification. And then just talk a little bit of diagenesis of the Silica Classic Rocks as a whole. And then maybe... Maybe that might take some twists and turns, so we shall see how things go. The term conglomerate really is going to be used as a general term for the class of sedimentary rocks that contain substantial amounts of gravel-sized fragments, usually on the order of roughly 30% or more. So the, the framework grains are going to be gravel-sized, and they're going to be 30% or more. Yeah, and when we when we use the term gravel, keep in mind we're talking about class or grains that are they have to be greater than 2 millimeters. Greater than two two millimeters. Okay, yeah, and then right. to yeah, greater. Yeah. and then to further classify it, those gravel-sized grains are rounded. The term conglomerate is still going to be used, <laughs> and if fragments are angular, this is what we're going to refer to as breccia, right? Oh gosh. Well, yeah, I I agree. There's stuff. There's weird stuff like debris flows and stuff that you can. I, I don't know. It get, it can get complicated, but I guess during this discussion, we'll just the two terms will be used to mean the same thing unless specifically identified. And I think it's a good call because like breccias, we could get into like fault breccias and like what we're really talking yeah. about are going to be these, <coughs> I'm dying. Like, so oh, no. I think, I think we're really going to be dealing more with the rounded class, but I think it's a good call nonetheless. And I don't want anyone to get confused out there in general sense. We will say conglomerates as the broad category, which it is. And when we make the distinction, conglomerates are meant to be classified with round class and breccias, just so you know, like you mentioned, are these angular classes. Are you confused yet? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. No. <laughs> I, I think I'm okay. We'll see how this goes. Okay. But, okay. So conglomerates are common, very pretty common in stratigraphic successions of all ages, but they probably make up less than 1% by weight of the total sedimentary record, right? Mm -hmm. They're closely related to the sandstones in terms of origin and depositional mechanism. Man, I, I think you're pretty spot on, dude, with that with the with that in the terms of the deposition and mechanism. So due to these mechanisms, right, is really why we see some of the same kinds of sedimentary structures, such as your tabular and trough cross bedding, graded bedding, la 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 la. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it sounds like you're describing a river channel to uh -huh. me. So that makes sense why the sandstones and conglomerates would be related. Also, when you think about it like bedding load, that's where your gravel is. Sand. Uh -huh is a little bit above that and then you have your suspended so it like think about a riverbed right like we talked about one percent like that's not going to be near as thick at least on like in some instances rather than like your whole like upper echelon of the river channel so it's that's a really good point on mm -hmm. like how much in volume but you're also right like when we examine the conglomerates they're going to contain many other individual grains, such as like quartz and feldspars of actual mineral grain. Yeah, and I would say, however, that that most of the grain size framework grains are really commonly going to be, I guess, rock fragments, and that's what we, I guess, <laughs> what we call clasts. And now the individual sand or mud sized mineral grains are commonly present as a matrix and those class you were talking about can be present in a conglomerate and can really be any sort of igneous metamorphic or other sedimentary rock right and then the the class found are going really going to depend on the source rock and depositional conditions present when they're deposited so when we find some conglomerates are going to be composed only the most stable and durable kinds of class such as quartzite chert or vein quartz so stable conglomerates composed mainly of single class type are what we are going to refer to as oligomict 
conglomerates. So a ligamate. <laughs> these words are yeah. a ligamate. Throwing out the fancy words. There. Yeah, honestly, the the yeah the oligomict and the polymict and petromict <laughs> are terms that I'm still <laughs> clearly getting used to. <laughs> yeah, me too. A ligate, a lig, conglomerate. They'll derive mostly from mixed parent rock as being the source that included less able rock types. Yeah, and then continued recycling of these mixed ultra-stable and unstable class through several generations of conglomerates has ultimately led to selective destruction, I believe, of the, the less stable class and concentration of the more stable class, if you will. What we see in these conglomerates is they contain an assortment of many kinds of class or what we call polymic conglomerates and polymictic conglomerates that are made of, of different mixtures of largely unstable or metastable class. So that'll be like your basalt, yeah. your limestone, shale, metamorphic phyllite. They're commonly called petromix conglomerates. Yeah, and then I think really almost any combination of these class types are are really possible in the the petromictic uh, conglomerate. So these words, man. <laughs> yeah. So the, it's and, weird that they are hard. I, I don't understand why they are. Yeah, like are. I don't know why that <laughs> petromict. Like I, it's yeah. maybe it's just uh, I don't know. Reading it, it's a lot easier than saying. I think, but anyways, the <laughs> the matrix of these types of conglomerates commonly consist of really various kinds of clay minerals and fine micas and or silt or sand sized quartz, feldspars, rock fragments, and heavy minerals. Uh, but uh, don't forget the matrix may be cemented with quartz, calcite, or even hematite or clay or geez, whatever other cement you can throw out there. Yeah, right. And then the the matrix may be cemented with quartz, calcite, hematite, and <laughs> other ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, what happened? <laughs> no. I, <laughs> All right, Mr. Literal. Um, how about you? Because you said us, don't forget uh, to mention. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So I, uh, okay. Ha ha ha. Yes, you're very funny. Um, <laughs> uh, well, how about you just tell us about classification? Let's let's get there. All right, man. You got it, right? We're, we're on a roll. So classifying the conglomerates. <laughs> so conglomerates can originate by several processes such as epiclastic, volcanically, cataclastic, solution, and meteor impact. But for this talk, we will concern ourselves with the epiclastic conglomerates and breccias, which form by breakdown of older rock through the process of weathering and erosion. Yeah, you're right. So epic plastic conglomerates that are so rich in gravel-sized framework grains that the gravel-sized grains touch and form a supporting framework are then going to be called class-supported. So then then I guess you could imagine the other type is going to be class-poor conglomerates that consist of sparse gravel supported in a mud-sand matrix, and these are called matrix-supported grains. So up there, I think it's going to play an important role later when we start talking about diagenesis, but the, mm -hmm. the, the, the contact of the grains or, you know, like whenever they're grain-supported versus class-supported, so... Right. Yeah. Some have actually called for a naming of class supported conglomerates to be referred to simply as conglomerate and that matrix supported conglomerates be called diamictite. Okay. So I, I think, well, okay. So, but I think what our diamictites is the name we give to poorly sorted glacial deposits. No? Yeah. I mean, you're right. So, but it can, it can also be viewed in a non-genetic term okay. that can be applied to I guess, like unsorted or, or poorly sorted siliciclastic sedimentary rocks that, that contain larger particles of any size. In a, in You have to have the muddy matrix. Okay, right on. So just a quick run back so we're on the same page. So we're going to classify the rocks as conglomerates if they're classed supported. And if they are matrix supported, we will call them diamictite. Yes? Yes. Okay, I think we're tracking now. I got it. <laughs> I think. But <laughs> I, so, yeah, and I think it only really serves the purpose when analyzing <laughs> them <laughs> but that's just me lols <laughs> yeah i mean so i i hear that quite a bit i i always like to take it to that like deep analysis level but that's just me but but you'll love this okay okay so conglomerates and diamictites that have greater than 90 percent ultra stable class are going to be what you call by as quartzose or ligament right? okay so and i actually think i i misspoke earlier so like i i said uh, less stable class when it when we were referring to oligomic okay they gotta have the the ultra stable okay so th they're gonna be classified as quartzose conglomerate diamectite but when the class are less than 90 percent ultra stable we're gonna have to classify them as 
Tetramix. Okay, so it looks like we're doing a little bit of that uh, that that tertiary kind of how we did with the, <laughs> the sandstones. So I believe oh, we yeah. can go, yep. and I believe we can go even a step further in classifying them if we really wanted to get technical on the basis of class type, <laughs> whether it's igneous, Ooh, yeah. metamorphic, yep. or sedimentary. <laughs> but such classification is rarely necessary in most cases, so I think we're going to spare you with that. So it seems like most geology is the science <laughs> of unnecessary classifying things into categories, and then each fraction has the same category as a higher classification, just with marked distinctions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it does help identify in more detail, or it tells a more complete story, which I have to like say this study I'm doing, uh-huh. 100% am having to really get into, they were like, can you classify the coarse sand and gravel, the fine gravel grains? So I'm like, Hold on, because like, (laughs) and I put this in my report, okay? So if you have, say you have coarse feldspar and a thin uh, tabular hornblende crystal, right? Okay. So you would say, okay, well, like there, it's probably a granitic class. I mean, I that would know sense. though, because like you can have different cumulates and like different like crystallization sequences. And so like in my report, I'm like, you can't classify like what the parent rock is by simply looking at 2.5 millimeter. Class. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that so, goes back so, to like, your, uh, you're trying to classify a rock based on one of the classes, <laughs> right? Yeah. Didn't you say? <laughs> so, yeah. And so I, I think that what you said still holds, holds true because like you just need to know like where is most of your stuff coming from? If you can say it's igneous or metamorphic, that sometimes can be hard depending on how large, like that's what I'm getting at, or sedimentary, then you're okay for the most part. But uh-huh. there are some studies that it's like, damn it, I have to try to classify this as stupid. Yeah, so, well, I know, I know, uh, I know. Well, then let's take with the with the conglomerate, so that your quartzose example or the oligomite, right? So conglomerates. So yeah. they, they're derived from meta-sedimentary uh, rocks containing quartzite beds, igneous rocks containing quartz-filled veins, and sedimentary secessions, particularly limestones, which contain chert beds. Yeah, I think, as we mentioned earlier, the less stable rock types must have been destroyed by weathering, uh, erosion, sedimentary transport, perhaps the two, three X amount of cycles of transport. That's really important because your, your sedimentary rock unit may be like third cycle and you're going to have like all quartz and like, yeah. like exactly like really durable stuff. But you also have a lot of heavy minerals in the matrix. So that can be a clue as well. Yeah. Uh, really stable stuff, but it produces a residuum of stable class. That's yeah. And kind of like the key. Yeah, and then I think because quartzite class represent only a small fraction of a much larger original body of rock, the, the really the, the total volume of quartzose conglomerate is relatively small. And then they, they really tend to only occur as thin pebble pebbly oh my goodness, pebbly layers pebble. or lenses of pebbles <laughs> in dominantly sandstone units. And then also we kind of we see these rocks can either be classed or matrix supported and they're seen over the whole extent of geologic time like basically ranging from at least from precambrian to tertiary right so all of um, time <laughs> they, i mean pretty much right like we're not i i believe there could be archean or hadian conglomerates i don't know but right. I, okay. i'm sure there are i don't know but they're their depositional environment appears to be mainly fluvial which would in make origin sense. yeah yeah and and are probably deposited in braided streams because you need a lot of energy to pull all this stuff down and really abrade it right yeah but it, it can be deposited in a littoral or beach environment and they've been like identified mainly by the processes of, of wave reworking so um i was gonna say you like the literal <laughs> uh, uh, yeah exactly <laughs> did i say literal, literal? No, i don't know <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. This is what my brain is. No, it's, no, 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 no. But like. <laughs> oh my God. Did I? <laughs> no. <laughs> no we're not I'm just telling saying. you what we're doing right now. <laughs> not allowed. No. <laughs> okay. So that's a side little. You know, I am James thing. the Liquor. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Of the littoral. I'm sure you're uh, well Or liked. beach environments. Um, so. <laughs> on a beach environment. <laughs> no, a littoral. Yes. Uh, environment. <laughs> I look the sediments. Uh, moving along. So yeah. <laughs> most tetramix conglomerates are polymix uh, 
conglomerates that consist of a variety of metastable class that can be derived from many kinds of plutonic, igneous, volcanic, metamorphic, or other sedimentary rocks. Mm-hmm. Although the class in particular, in like any particular conglomerate, may be dominantly one or another of these rocks. So you might see like one over the other, I guess. Yeah. So I guess in other words, what you're saying is that a particular conglomerate, I, I guess, may be, let's say, a limestone conglomerate or a basalt conglomerate or even, I guess we could call a schist conglomerate and so on. And so Right on. you are. Yeah. 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 It, I like think about it. Like when we even like you said, schist, we don't just say schist. If you say schist, yeah, we're just going to assume you, it's a, a metamorphic rock. Well, you would, but you would never just say that. Uh, you almost always you say like a uh, biotite schist yeah. or a uh, fuchsite schist or whatever. Like, right. Like there's always like the, uh, the category, the categorizing word for it. Well, yeah, because schist um, is just like the uh, texture, right? It's like the schistosity of it. Right, yeah. yeah. So it makes sense that if you have a definitive class type, you're going to want to put that descriptor out front, limestone, basalt, or like you said, schist, conglomerate. Yeah, or but we're just going to put gold it, on the tongues of that class. Or that too, yeah. <laughs> They're the if higher class. gold <laughs> in like a conglomerate in like gravel size, you should probably spend a lot of time. Yeah, no, I was just saying like <laughs> they're, they're, if, if you see the the clasp with the gold tongues and they're probably they're probably the they're they're they're, they're a higher order clasp yeah yes, I agree <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I I believe these types of conglomerates are a lot more common and make up these great conglomerate bodies in the geologic record and can be anywhere up to like probably thousands of meters in thickness yeah. and that's massive yeah. right like <laughs> To say the least, man, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. like thousands of meters of this, of this just, I call it whenever I see, whenever I see conglomerates out in the field, I'm like, this is just fuckery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or like, like even speaking of like a formation. So I'll, I'll read papers and they're like, yes. And the uh, Dakota formation is 800 meters thick in this. I'm like, are you yeah, 800 just- meters? And then like just what? And that and that and that and that takes me to like the preservation of such thicknesses, right? Like I would imagine that it's going to you're gonna have to have some kind of environment. And to me, it really I think implies that you'd have to have some you'd basically you'd have to have rapid erosion of sharply kind of elevated highlands, or you'd have to have areas of active volcanism, right? To have such pres- preservation of thickness. And then the transport of these sediments would be from I guess more fluid flow and sedimentary gravity flow mechanisms, which can be accomplished by such depositional environments as I, I guess your fluvial or your shallow marine to deep marine. But I think, however, the, the bulk of the truly thick conglomerate bodies of greater than, I guess, 20 meters or so are probably deposited in non-marine settings such as your alluvial fan settings and braided rivers. Yeah, so you can you can also get deposition of the thicker beds in, your, in like your deep sea fan setting. And I believe that the conglomerates of the deep marine are so-called recidimented conglomerates oh fancy yeah it's my turn to the fancy word oh, yeah. you took a ligamic earlier <laughs> I, I, I think yeah. i butchered it when i first said it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um so those the recidimented conglomerates were transported from near shore areas by turbidity current or word. other sediment <laughs> yeah <laughs> or, or other sediment gravity flow processes. Turbidity current strikes again. <laughs> and then speaking of striking again, another type of conglomerate I would like to talk about is the intraformational conglomerates. So mm. these conglomerates are composed of class of sediment believed to have formed within depositional basins in contrast to extraformational conglomerates uh, that were derived from outside of the depositional basin. So these types of conglomerates, if I'm not mistaken, originate by the word, uh, I, I got to say this in one go. I'm going to try <laughs> So I'll do it slow-mo, right? Uh, okay. They're, they're going to originate by Ene Contemporaneous. Yeah. Ene Contemporaneous. <laughs> hold on. Deformation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hold, hold on. Hold on. Uh, good job, man. Uh, and the crowd goes wild. <laughs> You're like playing, doing something in your room, and you're like, yeah. oh yeah, all the like, time. Yeah, you know, okay. I had I had a very I, I active think, imagination. Yeah, same. Anyway, so in a contemporaneous deformation, so that that happens like within your semi-consolidated sediment that's been sitting there, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but then it's like the re- redeposition of the fragment fairly close to the to the site of where you see the 
deformation. And no, but yeah. I think you're going to win uh, word of the day, Mr. Baggins, with the penne okay. contemporaneous, huh? huh. <laughs> I'd see, it. like, when I saw I'll the penne, I'm like, that's like an Italian, Pasta. like, contemporary, like, <laughs> it's like a, if, it's like when I think of my kids' art with, when they glue, uh, pen, you know, pasta, <laughs> penne <Macaroni> contemporaneous. <laughs> <laughs> so I do, I do know that what I do know about these types of conglomerates is that the I think the sediment that makes up the class can occur subaerially, such as the drying out of mud on a tidal flat or sediment gravity flows. So, but in any case, sedimentation is going to be interrupted only a short time during the processes, and it it really consists primarily of clasts that are siliciclastic mud clasts and lime clasts. And those clasts are usually angular or only slightly rounded, which that suggests that little transport or a, a close proximity from source has occurred. Yeah, so this is here where we see that we can start making some assertions about the angularity of the class and the and the energy of the environment and distance from the sources that we're talking about. Yeah, that's a really good point to note. Yeah, and so like this is what I tell my, my, my students, like usually, I mean, it's like if you just need to make a, a general assertion between like when you see a breccia and you see a conglomerate, like, right, so the conglomerate have the rounded clasts. So that means that they're, they're going to be in a high or I guess I guess a lower energy, but they're going to be in a, their conglomerates anywhere are going to be in a high energy environment because of the size. Yeah. But you can make some kind of like guesses where the, the source is coming from, right? Because if they're angled, they're going to be, they're not going to be in that in that environment to be rounded, to be uh, chemically weathered by the water and the abrasion and ablation, right? If they're, yeah. if they're rounded, they're going to be far from that source, right? They should be, yeah. And in, in like it can get a little complicated but generally that's it like if you've traveled a long way you're going to be really tired by the time you get to your ultimate destination yeah if you only have to walk to the grocery store like or whatever and you live right next to it uh-huh. then you're not going to be that tired so same with the with the grains with the class they're going to travel a long way they're going to show it yeah. um if yeah, and so like I, I think that's a good way to look at it. There are exceptions, but well, I would take like a take like a candy cane, if you will, if you break it right, and you or you just drop it on the floor, right? Yeah, it, it, it still has all like those angular pieces to it. But then if you were to like put it in your mouth and kind of like well, you know what you do with candy canes, you kind of suck on it a little bit, and then it gets yeah. a little it gets a little rounded after a while. So that would be like the these rocks being transported in that in that wet environment being rolled around. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. it, it's yep. regardless. So these these beds are uh, when we're talking about these intraformational conglomerates, the beds are commonly very thin and I'm talking thin as in only a few centimeters to a meter in thickness, which may be laterally extensive. So they're going to be spreading outwards. Yeah, that would make sense. So I know these intraformational conglomerates that are composed of shale rip-up class. So okay. that, that's really common. You even see that in our rivers here in North Texas. Mm-hmm. So you'll have like a Permian formation and then like you'll have an unconformity with Cretaceous. For instance, um, like out west, like there's, I gosh, I can't remember the actual name of the Permian formation. I feel really dumb now. But then you'll have like the Twin Mountains formation. As usual, but usually on top of the shale, you'll have a, con- a conglomerate or a gravel body. And you'll have these rip-up class of shale in there, which are really weird because you'll be drilling a hole. They so have an eight inch borehole, right? Yeah. And you pull up the sample and you're like, oh, okay, all these gravels are kind of oriented the same way. Why is the shale just tipped up vertical? Uh-huh. Where's the shale coming from? Well, obviously, it's, you didn't go far enough because you barely tapped the contact. Shale's right underneath. It ripped up the class and it just got wedged in between the gravel class. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this is very common and it's going to be embedded. Like these rip-up class are embedded in the basal parts of sandstones. And in some cases, they're formed by... Let me guess, the turbidity currents or gravity flows. <laughs> wow, we're getting good with that. I mean, maybe it's just because it pops up all the time, but you're correct, sir. <laughs> Yay! That is correct. <laughs> kind of reminds me of Billy Madison when Chris Farley takes his shirt off. <laughs> and again, that is correct. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, RIP, Mr. Chris Farley. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, we've beaten that one over the head. So I think it would be uh, prudent of us to move on to mudstones to kind of keep this bad boy going. So mudstones and shales. Woo woo. Yay. My yeah. least favorite. I'm just <laughs> I think they're well, everyone's. They are, but, oh, they're so boring. <laughs> they are. We'll, we'll give them their daylight. Yeah. Uh-huh. So they're, they're like the yeah. other <laughs> geology podcasts out there. They're just not, they're not uh-huh. us. <laughs> <laughs> they never, like, either they've never heard of us or they just didn't, didn't 
listen or they don't care. Oh no! Oh no! Oh oh! We should tag them. We should tag them in something. Be like, hey, we should do an episode together. Yeah. Like I don't even know what kind of geologists they are. Oh, so I I wasn't referring to that particular podcast. I was just I I was generally talking about all all other any any podcasts that aren't us. They're they're kind of like the mudstones. They're just like meh. <laughs> yeah, what are we? Hope has Rylite. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we're we'll so, find we're, a good one. We're, we're fancy. We're probably like uh, I don't I know. Yeah, like just yeah, sexy. That's what we are. We just we're we're, we're all the rocks that geologists take home with them. They're not the ones. Yeah. That, they're not. They're not the leverites. You don't get left behind. Yeah, leverites. Yeah. <laughs> Lever right, right there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, so mud, mudstones, and shales. That's how I like to say that. Are what define rocks. They're fine grained, generally siliciclastic sedimentary rocks that contain more than 50% siliciclastic grains, less than, and here we go, 0.062, or well, let's just say 0.062 millimeter yeah. size. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So these are going to be dominantly of silt sized and clay size. So less than one two fifty sixth um, in size particles. And then shale is the historically, I guess, accepted class name for this entire group of rocks and is really equivalent <sighs> to the same name as like what we'd call sandstone, right? So we just, you know, uh, oh, yeah, it's a sandstone, just like based on its size, right? So I guess that's how we kind of think about shale shale and for the most yeah. part when you hear us talking about shales it's going to be referring to this type of sedimentary rock in that they are fine grained just well remember so if jason is listening to this yeah. he's going to be like we already talked about this and uh-huh. talked about how stupid that is but but i mean like i i hear you because that's generally like you talk to anyone they even if they're looking at a mudstone mud yeah. rock whatever they're gonna call it a shale uh-huh. And that's because it's been historically called that. Right. Um, but we can divide them into several kinds of classes, such as mudstones, mud shales, depending on the percentages of clay size constituents, and more importantly, the presence of or absence of lamination. Right. I think that's the distinction so, there, right? Yeah, that's the big distinction. Shales are laminated. Mudstones are usually considered massive. So some prefer to use the class name mud rock rather than shale for all fine-grained rocks, and then they subdivide it, the mud rocks into shale if lamination is present, and mudstones if it's non-laminated. That's the that's the school of thought I fall into. Yeah, and then regardless of all these terms are going to be restricted to fine-grained rocks, and we can, I think, all agree on that. <laughs> mm, maybe. Yeah. yeah. No. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, what we see in these mudstones and shales is that they're abundant in the sedimentary succession, making up roughly 50% compared to that 10% of conglomerates of all sedimentary rock on geologic records. Yeah, well, there, there's that. So, yeah, 50%. So this type of sedimentary rock, uh, therefore, is the most abundant type of sedimentary rock in the rock record, right? So when we think of sedimentary rocks, over 50% are shale. So it's going to be the most abundant. Even with that, I, I want to say that they are one of the most understudied rock types, too, based on just it being fine grained size making up them pretty difficult to study using your basic microscope and techniques yeah and like i think that's true like when i think of that i think of in in a geologic sense yeah they're the least studied engineering properties they might be the most studied in that like based on like what they, because they make up so much of surface rock especially here in texas yeah like a lot of our stuff um so engineering properties they're going to test quite a bit of stuff and confined compressive strength and like how much uh morillonite mectite series stuff the swelling and all that stuff that's study a lot but it kind of goes back to what we were talking like shales and mudstones are boring like yeah. geologists don't want to study that unless there's a bunch of like volcanic ash in there and they're just like hey guys here's a good spot like we can at least get a date here and then we'll move on like that, that's kind of what i, I and then if like, it, but, what if it's organic rich too i think it's kind of a sure oh well that yeah as exactly. a source or yeah so uh, i hate hating on this but i just i have to like they, they're so boring that's why they're understudied yeah but um but yeah like i think like when we talk about looking at cement um and matrixes that since there has been an increased interest and like you pointed out like basic microscope we have these new available technologies there's been a shift in studying them recently yeah so then um might I bring up the the mineralogy of mudstones then there, Mr. Mr. Baggins? Certainly. All right. Well, then uh, in our... <laughs> 
<laughs> I was gonna say like <laughs> like the 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 mudstones are they're like the hornfells of the metamorphic rocks, right? They're just like this uh, gross. Yeah. But I mean, that's basically yeah. what they are. What hornfells are, right? They're just like that. Uh, yeah. Like yeah. Ugh, like contact metamorphic mudstone. Gross. Get out of here. Yeah. All right. So, anyways, <laughs> so mudstones and shales are composed primarily of clay minerals and fine grained quartz and feldspars. So we see that they also typically contain really various amounts of other minerals, including your carbonate minerals, your sulfides, your iron oxides, and heavy minerals, as well as small amounts of organic carbon. What's cool is like the improvement of technology and magnification. That has really allowed us to examine both the mineralogy and graded detail and also the texture of laminated shales. And like we not only can like look at the texture, but like we also can look at like composition. So X-ray diffraction and identifies the clay minerals. So all that super cool. Uh, I don't know. Do no, you think that's cool? I, I think that's I think it's effing cool man <laughs> i just wish i had i need i need to get a uh like a, a petrographic microscope with the with the xls yeah. we should open a shot i i feel like we'd be good at this like yeah. we can just do this yeah, people just, pay good money for that for yeah graphic and now we can do this maybe i know we can <laughs> i know we can. I, i'll just be like brian i'll do i'll do the reports you do the looking at the microscope <laughs> <laughs> there you go yeah. well so back on track with mudstone yeah <laughs> man do we have to shales, <laughs> i guess but okay so there's many factors that affect the composition of, of shales and mudstones in that that includes even tectonic setting, right? Provenance, depositional environment, grain size, and and burial diagenesis. And you and the fancy words today. So, yeah, yeah, and then we see some minerals such as your carbonate minerals and sulfide form in these shells during burial as cements or replacements, which might include your pyrite or marcasite or calcite and siderite. Mm. And then we can think of the, the quartz, feldspars, and clay minerals are really going to be seen as mainly detrital minerals. Uh, Minerals. And when we say detrital, if you remember, it just means like terrigenous or just coming from the, the weathered yeah. rocks. So, right. Yeah. Like transported. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'd point out some of these minerals can occur as secondary growth during burial diagenesis. So, in particular, clay minerals appeal, appear to be strongly affected by diagenetic processes with relative proportions being a function of burial temperature. And you can see that like glauconite is something that would grow right in like your sandstones and like even in your shales yeah like at contact but like also you mentioned siderite that's iron carbonate uh-huh. uh, you see that here in north texas in the woodbine shales a lot of like it looks like you have like this iron oxide but like when you really look down at it like under scope you notice that it's a carbonate yeah and so it, it's it's actually siderite but it grew there after the fact. So, I mean, like, so would that kind of be like the, uh, what you see over, uh, over by Benbrook Lake and when you're looking at all those, like that clay shell, but it has kind of like the, the rust color in some areas. It, it could be, I'm trying to think that's usually the Goodland formation. Yeah. I think over there. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so that would make sense. You have a lot of carbonate, you have calcium carbonate being dominant there, but if you have iron at all and it gets you have dissolution, then they're going to bond later. Yeah. So that can be, that, that makes sense to me. I I don't know though, but we should definitely go fossil hunting there as soon as possible. Yeah. It's just <laughs> not this weekend because it's going to be colder than, Hell, good Lord. Dude, I think I have to do field work on Monday. Dude, it's going to be like, it's going to be like 12 degrees in the morning. I know. And <laughs> like, I'm what like, is that? Why? I'm just going to sit. I'm going to be one of those guys that's like, yep, you're doing good. <laughs> <laughs> dude it reminds me of whenever we were at field camp and we're trying tr- you know like going up and down the mountains and that you would have those freak thunderstorms i, I yeah. swear to god as soon as like <laughs> lightning struck like like trees like not not like yeah. not not like half a mile away. i'm just i'm talking like trees away from me <laughs> i i me and jason were just like i i like geology i like geology but i'm not gonna die for geology dude i was like done i was like nope There's i'm not two, nope no there's too much beer to drink to die for you. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> No, yeah. No, I get what you're saying. But yeah, and then with t- 
time in particular, rocks older than the Mesozoic in these types of rocks, we see the proportion of illite and chlorite increase at the expense of kaolinite and smectite. And these trends can be attributed to the diagenetic alteration of kaolinite and smectite to form the illite and chlorite. Boom. Yeah, in like briefly touching on that chemical composition, these rocks are a direct function of their mineral composition. So back, like meaning to the SiO2 content of shales is affected by all silicate minerals, but but particularly by quartz. Yeah, 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 you're right. And then uh, shales tend to contain less uh, quartz or SiO2 than do, say, sandstones, which we saw were commonly enriched in the in the quartz. Yeah, and the, so you have, I was going to say aluminum oxide, but that's wrong. It's like technically like Al2O3. Um, that that compound derived mainly from clay minerals and feldspars, which is less abundant in, sand, in in most sandstones. Yeah, and then on to the classification, if you will, because special analytic techniques, like you were saying, are required to determine the mineral composition. Uh, and it can be really time-consuming and expensive. Many geologists we see that do not, I guess they don't routinely determine really the mineral composition of these types of rocks in general. In general, unless your name is Brian Baggin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like this has led to most classifications not being widely accepted, or at least not entirely on mineral composition on that on that basis. But they do commonly emphasize the relative amount of silt and clay in the presence of and the presence of fissile or laminations. That's huge in my line of work. The engineers just are like, Oh yeah, let's go to lot of silt and clay and I'm like, But what is this silt and clay? Yeah. Like, I don't care. I'm like, you should care. Yeah, you should like, care. But why? Because they, they, they only think of like right now what fits into the box of their equation. Yeah. I think we're getting there though. I think that future the research is going and, and I, I'm only a measly geologist at my level. There are probably other geologists out there that are way ahead. But, but they're probably also asking the engineers like, well, what, what kind I of so. I, I really hope so. <laughs> you know, like, well, maybe they're listening to us now and we're showing them the, right. the light. Yeah. So, right. and then like, you, you said those words, fizzle lamination. So, and fizzle or the fizzility uh, for <laughs> those who have never heard of that term before just means the property of rock to split easily along thin, closely spaced, approximately parallel layers. Uh, do you remember? Do you remember abyssal fissile? Yeah, the abyssal fissile. Yeah, like that, that's, it's like that really black shale that just breaks so I, well on the laminated plane. Yeah, I wonder so if cool. it has the was the ultra black definition. It probably does. <laughs> It, maybe there's an ultra black <laughs> angler fish. I don't know when they were around. I'm sure they've, <laughs> they've been. I think they may have populated the. There's things. Cool. Mariana's Trench has stuff that. Good God, who knows? Did you um, know there's anyway. actually animals down at the bottom? There's like ecosystems down there. Yeah, it's, and it's crazy. Like the size of like 50 jumbo jets stacked upon you. That pressure. Good Lord. Yeah. So our fifth song on the new record will be called Mariana, and it's going to be very about that what we just talked about yeah anyway so cool stuff i think so. one yeah yeah so we're we were talking about facility right and so like to classify this a classification scheme is the potter maynard prior classification is based on grain size so percentage clay minerals in the presence or absence of lamination yeah, and I, and I think this one really emphasizes the importance of clay-sized constituents and bedding thickness that is whether it's bedded or laminated. Yeah, so depending on the, the variables, fine-grain argillaceous rocks, that means clay, clay-rich rocks, yeah. can be divided into mudstone. So just to put a number on that, that'll contain like 33, evidently 33% to 65% clay-sized constituents and are bedded. And then I'll play the, the the other side of you so you said mudstone so mud shales which are going to be classified uh, based on 33 to 65 percent clay size constituents and are laminated and then we have clay stones which are 66 to 100 percent clay size constituents embedded and then we have the clay shales <laughs> which are going to be 66 to 100 percent clay size constituents and are laminated and and i and i wanted to note that some confusion is created here with the dual use of budstone to mean both non-laminated fine-grained argillaceous rock with a specified content of clay size minerals and its use as a generic name for all non-laminated fine-grained argillaceous rocks 
So as yeah, as mentioned, the terminology for fine grained argillaceous sedimentary rock is messy. Yeah, kind of like if you were to, I guess if you're if you're gonna play in the mud, like you expect to get a little dirty, right? <laughs> but like yeah. that's no joke. Yeah. And then I guess lastly, I guess we'll briefly go over the concurrences of mudstones and shales, and that they can form under any environmental condition. Wow. <laughs> I guess I'll Freak. I'll expand a little bit. So um so they can form in any environment in which fine sediments are abundant and water energy is sufficiently low to allow settling of that suspended fine silt and clay. Yeah, and they're particularly characteristic of marine environments adjacent to major continents. So where the seafloor lies below stormwave base and are likely to be formed in lakes in quiet parts of rivers, or or your lagoons, tidal flat, and even even in deltaic environments. Yeah, so I think what I have to say about that is shales, bales... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I guess, I guess before we start talking about anything else in diagenesis, how about we do a little bit of this mineral? Uh. Mineral minutes. Mineral. Minerals. Okay. Mineral. S I O two. Mineral minutes. S O four. Minerals. All right. Well. Jesus Christ. I don't know what's going on with me anymore. So this week's Mineral Minute is brought to you by the intermediate member of the solid solution series between the sodium-calcium subgroup of the amphibole supergroup, fairy fluorocatophorite. Fairy fluorocatophorite chemical formula is NACAMG4 fe 3 si 7 alo 22 yeah, so the ferrofluorocatafluoride <laughs> is an inosilicate with two periodic double chains, SIO or SI4O11. Ferrofluorocatafluoride crystal system is monoclinic V2M. Yeah, so the ferrofluorocatafluoride occurs as a greenish gray prismatic lamellar crystals with perfect 110 cleavage. Ferrofluorocatafluoride. <laughs> usually gray and the tenacity is brittle and has a vitreous luster. So this mineral's type locality is Bear Lake Diggings of Bancroft, Ontario, Canada. Dude, okay, so I, I I know we keep saying like band names like the Old Red Sandstones. Like I want a song or an album of mine to be called Bear Lake Diggings. <laughs> Sounds yeah, cool. That is perfect. Do it, please. Bear Lake Diggings. <laughs> Stay tuned for next week's mineral Floro Canaloi. Yeah. <laughs> How do <laughs> you say that? <laughs> uh, minerals. Mineral minutes. Mineral. All right, man. So I, I'll tell you, like looking up these minerals, there's like absolutely nothing on these minerals to like have any no, kind of. Like they're like <laughs> the most obscure. <laughs> they, they really are. And there's like one. Yeah published paper on them and it's just like yeah. well this was just like a like how did how did you get guys get this to be a a known mineral yeah i don't I, know yeah i don't know so i uh, we apologize um, if it's short but yeah 